weekly schedule that's going on here at Calvary Chapel. I'm glad you can join us for our online service here in Amos. Well, in chapter 4, as Father, we come and we ask that you would just minister to our hearts once again as we open up the scriptures. We thank you for the technology that allows us to do this. And Lord, to be able to be in a section of the Word of God that oftentimes gets ignored uh, by Christians and churches, but there's something here for us. And Lord, we want to take in uh, these words, uh, even as there's a lament here uh, that teaches us something. And, and it shows us how your heart breaks when we turn away from you. It shows us uh, what happens, uh, a life that uh, pursues sin and carnality. Um, there's just captivity, and, and there's uh, all kinds of serious consequences and repercussions that happen because of it. So we give you this time to study of your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So keep in mind that Amos is about 760 uh, B.C. He's ministering during the reign of Uzziah the king in Judah, uh, and then also he's prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II up in the ten northern tribes of Israel, the house of Israel. And it was a time that both the nations were doing well. That is, they were prosperous. Uh, externally, they were doing well to where they were expanding. Uh, Uzziah was a king that was on the scene for, I believe, 52 years, as you read those historical books of the Old Testament. And he was one that um, he uh, made innovations in agricultural practices, he also in military weaponry. He fortified the cities of Judah, he just was able to do that in a way to where, um, you know, the Judah had expanded uh, over to the Mediterranean Sea, uh, over uh, to the east side of uh, the Jordan River and parts of it. And then also the house of Israel, Jeroboam, they were prospering as well because the Assyrians at this time uh, just have a brief decline. And then they're going to rise back up to power and then uh, taking the ten northern tribes off into uh, captivity that's going to be spoken here as part of the judgment that comes to the house of Israel. And Amos, who is a sheep breeder, Amos, who is a farmer, uh, in that area around Bethlehem, he leaves and he goes up to the ten northern tribes of the house of Israel to prophesy mainly to them. And he's speaking the words of the Lord, and, and he is giving a powerful, powerful message to them, even as we know that during this time, that the other prophets are on the scene as well as they are ministering, as we have mentioned, and um, his contemporaries. So let's begin to read in chapter 4 as we read Bashan uh, here, as he mentions, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria. This is verse 1. Who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring wine, let us drink. Now, Bashan was located on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. You might recall that there was two and a half tribes on the east side of the Sea of Galilee when the children of Israel came into the Promised Land and they divided up their allotments. And it was even before that, when they were in the wilderness, when they were on that side, that it was Reuben, Gad, and half of the tribe of Manasseh that said, we like it up here. It's, it's lush, it's fresh. Uh, it's good for our cattle. Can we be over here? And initially, Moses, I think, as you read there in the Old Testament, was disappointed that you know, they didn't want to go across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land. But the Lord said, you know what, uh, Moses, it's okay. They can have those allotments. 
I ask that when you go into the promised land, make sure, and Joshua would make sure that this happened, that those men from those two and a half tribes would go in and help them take the land as they would do battle against the Canaanites. So here they are. They're on the east side of the Jordan River. They actually would be the first ones that would be taken off into captivity in about 732 B.C., by the Assyrians. And then later on, as they would cross the Jordan River and, and come into the area of the Sea of Galilee, they would take the rest of the uh, ten northern tribes off into captivity. But it's very green pastures up there. It's in that area, a lot of it called the Golan Heights. And the cows of Bashan here are not literal cows, but it is speaking of the upper class women of Israel. And Amos will speak of their, uh, as he does here, their indulgence, their extravagant lifestyle. To remind you, it's a very, very prosperous time. And it isn't that Amos is picking on women. He's just telling us what the culture was like, what the atmosphere was like uh, here. And it was um, not so much that they had things, but it was their sinful attitudes um, and actions they oppressed the poor. They, they crushed the needy. They insisted that their husbands supply them with intoxicated drink. They were self-seeking and self-centered. And what is interesting is on Sunday, that you might recall that as we are in the Olivet Discourse, that Jesus, speaking about his return, you might recall that it was Jesus saying that the coming of the Son of Man is likened to the days of Noah, and also, in Luke's gospel, he says the days of Lot. And we know the sin of, uh, of Sodom. Lot was in Sodom, and we, we talked about that in detail. And we know that judgment would come to them. So we think of Sodom and Gomorrah as great immorality, but you might recall, and I think I made mention of this on Sunday, that there is also other things that were taking place. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, we just went over this not too long ago, a few months ago, traveling through the Old Testament, that we read that in chapter 16, verse 48, As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. He, he's rebuking Judah. Um, Ezekiel is at that time where he's speaking to the house of Judah. This is during the Babylonian captivity. And he says, you've done more wicked than Samaria. You've done more wicked than Sodom, and, uh, Sodom has. But here's the interesting thing. That, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She, she and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So the things that are being described to us in the house of Israel are very similar to what Ezekiel would describe was going on in Sodom during that time. They were selfish. They, they crushed the poor and the needy, didn't care about them, uh, full of indulgence, all these things, prideful. And, and we see that he continues saying, The Lord God, verse 2, has sworn by his holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when he will take you away with fish, fish hooks, and your posterity with fish hooks. You will go out through broken walls, each one straight ahead of her, and you will be cast into Harmon, says the Lord. So the Assyrians, as you know, that they would come and, and carry them away with fish hooks, and that's been mentioned here. And we know historically that the Assyrians were very brutal. They would skin people alive, they would torture people, and they would put big fish hooks in their mouths and carry them away 
captive. And he says, that's what's going to happen. You're going to be broken down and cast you know, down near Harmon. It could be, speaking of Mount Hermon, is what some have suggested, which is today the very northern tip of Israel, high mountain uh, that overlooks, you know, Syria. And uh, they got a little ski area up there, but it could be, speaking of that high mountain, it's probably what an amount of transfiguration happened that we read about uh, in the gospel accounts of, of, of the Mount of Transfiguration as Jesus is uh, transfigured before, you know, Peter, James, and John, and there's Elijah and Moses speaking with him. But we continue here in verse 4, Come to Bethel and transgress at Gilgal. Multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven. Proclaim and announce the freewill offering. For this you love, you children of Israel, says the Lord God. So Amos here, he's being a bit sarcastic in these verses. And we've talked about Bethel, uh, where it was in Judges chapter 20, was a place where the ark was kept for a short time. Uh, we know that Bethel, it means house of God. It ended up being called Beth Avon, which is the house of idols. Because Jeroboam the first, when the ten northern tribes broke away from from Judah and Benjamin, that they built two places of worship uh, to the golden calf in Dan, in the very northern part of the country, and then in Bethel. So it became known as uh, Beth, uh, Beth Avon, the house of idols. Gilgal was the place where the children of Israel first entered into the promised land. But now, again, it was a place of idol worship and offered vain sacrifices. And they, they loved doing that. And that's what uh, they were involved in. So as he continues writing to them, uh, he, he is going to say, you guys won't turn to the Lord and you're not going to receive correction. Let's read verse 6. Also, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So Amos begins to talk about God's correction which they did not accept. And cleanness uh, is equated to hunger. There was famine, uh, but they would not return to the Lord. We're going to see that Amos is going to speak about that there's famine in the land, but not for bread, but for the word of God. And as they are refusing the correction of the Lord, there's a lesson in that obvious for you and for me, and that is that we are to receive the correction of the Lord. And please always keep in mind, I need to remember this, and all of us need to remember this, that when the Lord does bring correction to us, it's for our benefit and for you know, us to do well in the things of the Lord. And if we resist the correction of the Lord, uh, then it's going to just bring those negative consequences and repercussion. Maybe perhaps he's bringing correction when it comes to an attitude towards somebody or forgiveness in a situation or towards someone when we have the imperative to forgive in Scripture. And maybe a, uh, uh, something that the Lord is dealing with you about uh, carnality or sin that's in your life. Whatever it may be, don't resist the correction of the Lord because He loves us and He knows that if we continue in disobedience or continue in carnality and sin, then it's going to bring harm to us. And it's a loving Father that says, I want you to return to me so you can do well and so you can be healthy and not be deceived and find yourself being held captive by deception and, and the things that are false. It's just going to harm you. And, and yet they refuse to, to do that. They're 
they refused to turn to the Lord. We continue reading in verse 7, that I also withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. Uh, I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon, and where it did not rain, the part withered. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, and they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. So drought came, water shortages. It's interesting here uh, to take note. I think particularly this is of interest in the day in which we are in because we know that we hear a lot about climate change. We hear a lot about um, you know the, the the change in the climate and global warming and all these things and how dire it is. Here the Lord is saying, listen, I, I withheld rain. I gave rain to one city. Um, you wondered to get drink. Uh, it was the source to, as this drought would come to them, uh, that they needed the rain three months before the harvest so that the plants could grow. But the Lord is saying, this is what I'm doing to try to bring correction to you to get your attention. We know that there's drought going on in our own nation. We hear about the drought in the West, how severe it is. And we say, well, it's man-made climate change is what it is. And, and what really struck me is they had the UN Assembly uh, you know, gathering of leaders of the nation and having these conferences and, and virtual meetings about climate change. And our president said that this is what I want to do. I want to... to change it. I, I want to bring uh, help. I, I, I want to stop the earth from warming. And I thought, you can't do anything. And no one can, not just you. But I think that this is the Lord, that he is in control of those things. And what we need more than anything, and I'm not saying we shouldn't have you know, clean air and clean water and those things and, and more efficient uh, fuel if we're able to develop those things. But to say that man is able to change the climate and man is able to stop it, uh, that's a pretty big boast. And I think that uh, as we know that we see the drought and stuff coming, that what we need to do is we need to get on our knees as a nation and say, Lord, forgive us and call out to him and confess our sins and return to him so he'll heal our land. And that's what we know that the Lord was wanting them to do, to bring healing to our land, to help us. And so here, you have no you know, satisfaction. You have not returned to me. In verse 9, that I blasted you with blight and mildew when your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, your olive trees. The locusts devoured them. You have not returned to me, says the Lord, I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with the sword, along with your captive horses. I made a, the stench of your camps come up to your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. In verse 11, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning um, and yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. That phrase over and get, you have not returned to me. I've done these things. I've done these things chasing you, so you'll turn back to me. And of course, we know that the covenant that God made with the nation there at Mount Sinai was if you forsake me, these are the things that are going to happen. And it wasn't for their destruction. He's desiring them to turn back to him. And we've talked about this quite extensively 
going through these books of the prophets. So this continual judgment on Israel, trying to get them to return to him. He wants them to come to him because of his love for them. And God chastens you and me because of his love for us. Hebrews chapter 12. We know the Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11. Don't despise the chastening of the Lord. That's what the writer of Hebrews quotes from, that you may not get blasted with blight. And he's desiring to get our attention. But he is a loving father that desires to, to chasten us so that we don't go in that direction. That's going to lead to captivity and destruction in our lives. And then as I read this, you know, these things that he is saying, you would not return to me, and you uh, have not returned to me, repeated. I can't help but think about in Revelation chapter uh, 2, when Jesus writes that first letter of seven letters to the churches in Proconsular Asia, that he says that you, church of Ephesus, you've lost your first love. You've left your first love. You've left your first love. And this is what you're to do. You're to repent. You are to, to uh, you know, remember from which you have fallen, repent, and return, the three R's. Remember from which you have fallen. And that's a pattern that we see here with the message of the Lord to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He reminds them, remember from which you, you know, have fallen. Remember what it was like when I brought you out of Egypt. You were in bondage. And you've laughed, and I've brought you into the land, and I've blessed you. And the blessings that you experience now, even though externally that you're going through prosperity and you're going through things that everything looks well, it's because my hand has blessed you. Remember, remember from which you have fallen. And then repent, stop doing it, and then return to me. And yet they didn't do that because they had left their first love. And so we are to be ones that... As the Lord, as he ministers to us, as we go to him and say, Lord, here's my heart. Search me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. Have you left your first love? You know, are you doing, you're working hard, you're doing all these things so you can be, do well in life and, and uh, all these other things. But perhaps the Lord at times says, you need to return to me. Remember how I blessed you. I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you. I brought you out of the world. And now turn to me, and, and you are to do those first works. You are to uh, be ones that, uh, that you are to turn to me in a way that you are doing those things that are pleasing to me. And then remain there is what we are to do. So a very important lesson for us uh, as we look at these things. You know, the love of the Lord is what is really, really important and we are to do that. So remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Um, that is return is what the message is to that church and the message is to us and the message here to the house of Israel given here. So verse 12, Therefore thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Isn't that a powerful verse? Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And that is something that is for everyone. Prepare to meet your God because someday we're going to stand before the Lord. And we're going to talk more specifically about this when we go into chapter 25 when, when Jesus, continuing that Sermon on the Mount, he's going to talk about being prepared and being wise and continuing to do the things of the Lord because he's telling us in the Olivet Discourse concerning his return that we're to be watching 
and that we're to be wise and we're to be prepared. That's a repeated message for the coming of the Lord because it comes at a time that we do not know. And then he shows us how we can be prepared in a couple parables that we're going to learn. And one of them is the parable of the talents that there was a master that gave to his servants talents. He went away for a long time and came back, and they were to give an account of how they invested those talents. It's very similar to the parable of the minas in Luke's gospel as the nobleman would give each one of his servants uh, a mina, same amount. The, the two parables are different, but they're similar in some ways. He would go away to receive you know, a kingdom, and he would come back and they would have to give an account. And one of the main emphasis of those parables of the talent and mina is this, that we're going to have to give an account of what has been entrusted to us and how we invested in the things of God and in the kingdom of God. We're not going to give an account for our sins because here's the thing, Jesus died for our sins. In other words, we're not going to be judged for our sins. Jesus took the judgment on Calvary's cross. But the things that we did in life, as we give an account, the things that were, you know, as we put things under the blood of Jesus Christ, but the things that are unlike the Lord are going to burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. And then the things that we did for the Lord are going to shine forth. But in that parables, we will talk about more specifically, is I can't wait to hear those words, or I desire to hear those words, for me and for you, well done, good and faithful servant, because you invested in the things that, that were given to you. Prepare to, to meet your God. We will all stand at the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, not to be judged for our sins. That's been taken care of by the cross of Jesus Christ, but to receive words, what we have done in the body, whether good or bad. So we will talk more specifically about that. But this is a very sobering verse. Prepare to meet your God. Everyone will meet the Lord. And for us, the Bema reward seat of Jesus Christ, for the unbeliever at the great white throne judgment, where they will be sentenced to outer darkness. And in Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to the glory of God the Father that, that Jesus Christ is Lord is he's exalted. We have done that now in our lifetime. But those who have rejected him will be forced to do that when they stand at the great white throne judgment. So very, very sobering. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind uh, it declares to man what his thought is and makes the morning darkness who treads the high places of the earth. The Lord God of hosts is his name as we finish the chapter for the Lord is all powerful he's all knowing he's all sovereign chapter 5 of Amos this lament for Israel hear this word which I take up against you a lamentational house of Israel a lament was a poem of grief we, we talked about this with Jeremiah um, the book of, of lamentations uh, Ezekiel they would lament that it would it reads like this poem of grief that it reads uh, like a funeral um, that uh, is given and and the prophets use this poetic form as Amos is for uh, you know the the death of a city uh, we know that Jeremiah the book of Lamentations is reads like a funeral for Jerusalem 
um, when he gives that lament. So Amos lament like uh, the judgment of God has already happened. And it would be like uh, reading your own obituary here as we continue in verse 2. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She will rise no more. She lies forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. Verse 3, for thus says the Lord God, the city that goes out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which goes out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. So fallen means, you know, fallen by the sword. There's no one to help, no one to restore. The cities and towns are decimated. That which is thousands, there will just be a hundred. And, you know, um, you know, a hundred left. And then those of a hundred, there will be ten left. And for thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, continuing, that seek me and live, do not seek Bethel, nor enter Gilgal, nor pass over Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity, and Bethel shall come to nothing. So the invitation is still out. Hey, you can seek me. Don't go to those places of false worship, because it's going to, those places fall into captivity. So national judgment was certain, but individuals could seek God and, and could live. So the invitation is, turn to me. Seek the Lord and live, verse 6, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour it, with no one to quench it in Bethel. You who turn justice to wormwood and lay righteousness to rest in the earth. So house of Joseph is, again, a reference to the northern nation. And even though he's saying individuals can seek me, here's the thing, that when we sin... You know, particularly those of us who are the head of our homes, parents, grandparents, uh, whatever the case may be, leaders in the church, it affects a whole lot of people. It just, it's not just about you individually or me individually, but it just it affects a lot of people. And the sins of the leaders and the religious leaders that we've taken note of that are, um, you know, told about, that they're leading the people astray, there's, there's just terrible consequences because of it. And then in verse 8, he made the uh, Pleiades uh, uh, and Orion, excuse me, he turned the shadow of death into morning and makes the day dark as night. He calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the face of the earth. Uh, the Lord is his name. Platius is what I was trying to say. It couldn't quite come out. He made the Platius and the Orion those constellations. And the Lord is his name. And he rain, uh, ruined upon the strong. The fury comes upon the fortress. So here in these verses, God again is all powerful. He's the one in control. He's the one that judges. He's the one that is the creator. And he makes the day dark as night. Interesting. He continues here um, indicting uh, in this lament of Israel, in verse 10, they hate the one who rebukes in the gate. They abhor the one who speaks uprightly. So the one who's at the gate of the city is to be a judge. They're not going to listen to them. They're not going to, you know, uh, listen to the one who speaks uprightly. Therefore, because you tread down the poor and take grain taxes from him, though you have built houses of hewn stone, you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink wine from them. For I know your manifold transgressions and your mighty sins 
uh, afflicting the just and taking bribes, diverting the poor from justice at the gate, and therefore the prudent keep silent at that time. So again, just telling us of the condition of what was going on, injustice to the poor, they were being oppressed, taken advantage of, um, all the things that you're pursuing, uh, you're not going to have those things. Uh, making houses out of hewn stone, you know, uh, you are planting the vineyards and drinking wine, and, and yet your sins are mighty is what he says here in describing the state of the nation. Um, and, and no one would speak against it. The leaders wouldn't speak against it. In verse 14, seek good and not evil that you may live. So the Lord God of hosts will be with you as you have spoken. Hate evil, love good, establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord God of hosts will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. So again, calling to repentance. It was an evil time. For us, we are to hate evil. Here's the thing. We are to hate sin. We don't hate the sinner. And here's the thing to always remember. That God doesn't hate the sinner. He hates the sin. And we are to hate the sin and we are in our own lives, we're not to just nicker about sin or it's no big deal or boys will be boys. You know, everybody's doing it. Not just that kind of mindset and attitude, but Lord, this is sin. This hurts me, but most of all, it hurts you. It hurts your heart. And it is sin that caused me to, to die spiritually, all of us, because we're all descendants of Adam, Romans chapter 5. And sin and death has come into the world. But Jesus went to the cross and died for my sins. It cost you your son. So I pray that we wouldn't just have this nonchalant, you know, just kind of no big deal uh, of sin. But we would see sin and we would uh, hate sin. And what it does to people, what it can do in our own lives as we, you know, uh, look at it. Um, we are to love what is good is what we are to do. And then in verse 16, the day of the Lord's interesting. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord says this, there will be wailing in all the uh, streets, and they shall say in the highways, alas, alas, and they shall call the farmer to mourning and the skillful lamenters to wailing. And all the vineyards shall, shall be wailing, for I, I will pass through you, says the Lord. And woe to you who desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him, as though he went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? It is not very dark with no brightness in it. So the judgment is going to affect everyone. The streets will be wailing, uh, you know, the people that are there, uh, the people on the highways, um, you know, for I will pass through, he says here. Uh, it was a familiar term when God passed through, for example, Egypt uh, with the judgments and the plagues that came through. It affected everyone. And then as we read here these verses in verses 18 through 20, why were they desiring for the day of the Lord? It may seem, well, to desire the day of the Lord, for what good is the day of the Lord to you? And it may sound kind of, why are they desiring the day of the Lord? Because, Pastor Jeff, we've been going through, you know, the, the end time prophecies and talking about that on Sunday morning. And the day of the Lord is a time of darkness. It's a time of judgment that's going to come as Amos here begins to talk about the day of the Lord. But here's the interesting thing. 
In Israel's thinking at this time, they thought the day of the Lord would be a day of God's vengeance against Israel's enemy. And that's what Joel would speak about, that we just got through before Amos. The blow of the trumpets, this mighty army that's coming against us, and, and the day of the Lord is a time of darkness. Here, the problem was is that they had, because of their sin, in a sense, they had become God's enemies. And the day of the Lord is referred to, as we know, as a time of darkness, as we have talked about, that you, brethren, as Paul would write about the day of the Lord, you're not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you, but you're children of the light. And here at this time, they were in darkness. And the judgment would come to you, and it would be like a bad dream, fled uh, from a lion. You know, what's going to happen is you're going to run into a bear. You're going to lean against the wall, and then a serpent's going to bite you. In other words, there will be, will be no escape from it. In verse 21, I hate, I despise your feast days. And this is very serious. All the religious activities says, I hate it. We know that Isaiah would write some of the same things. I'm tired of your Sabbaths. I'm tired of your feasts. I'm tired of your sacrifices. He, he wanted them to turn. It's better to obey than the sacrifice is what uh, the prophet would tell uh, Saul as he came back from battle and was disobedient to the Lord. He says that I desire for you to come and humble your hearts and turn to me is what he is saying to them. And I do not save your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness, like a mighty stream there in verse 24. Um, they were corrupt of heart. There was religion, but there wasn't real relationship. And he wanted justice and righteousness to be poured out on them like a mighty stream and flow from their lives. And then as we finish chapter 5, did you offer me sacrifices and offering in the wilderness 40 years, O house of Israel? You also carry Sakath, your king, and uh, Chion, your idols, the stars of your gods, which you made for yourselves. Therefore, I will send you into the captivity beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. So even though they were in Egypt, it's interesting here, there was pagan deities that they were worshiping. Even when they went into the promised land in the book of Joshua, that it's a, it's a book of, of faith, of victory. And at the end of that book, Joshua, he has a message to the children of Israel. He says, I know that some of you are pulling out your idols. And you need to choose this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So in Egypt, they, they had a problem with idol worship. Even in the wilderness, of course, they built a golden calf and danced around it. But even they carried those idols. And the Lord says, I see it. I know all about it. I abhor those things. And, and, you know, did you offer me sacrifices and offering in the wilderness? You carried those idols. And I will send you into captivity beyond Damascus as Assyria would come in and take them away into captivity, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. And in chapter 6, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. Go over to Cheaina and see, and go from there to Hamath the Great, and then go to Gath and the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is the territory greater than your territory? So here they were living comfortably with ease, trusting in themselves and their riches, 
and in their location, and God was asking them, go and look at these other pagan nations. You know, are you better than them who were judged? I will hold you accountable for your action. And verse 3, woe to you who put far off the day of doom, who caused the seed of violence to come near, who lie on beds of ivory, stretch out your couches, eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of string instruments and invent, invent for yourselves musical instruments like David. David was one that was a great psalmist and, and, and apparently invented musical instruments, but he had a heart after God, David, uh, who drink wine from bulls and anoint yourself with the best ointments, but are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. Therefore, verse 7, they shall go now go captive as the first of the captives, and those who recline at banquets shall be removed. So they had everything they wanted at the cost of oppressing others, and it didn't seem to bother anyone, and all those things will do them no good because you're going to go off into captivity. And here's the thing. Don't get too attached to the things of the world. You know, everything that we have, every good gift comes from above, and we can enjoy those things. But remember this, that those things are going to go away. And as we get older, we begin to think about these. All the things that we have, we're to be good stewards of it. But here's the thing. I want to have the mindset that this belongs to you, Lord. And I want to use it in a way that pleases you. But I can't take it with me. And I don't want to get too enamored with these things um, because we can't take it with us. And then in verse 8, the Lord God has sworn by himself. The Lord God of hosts says, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate the palaces. Therefore, I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. So the Lord sworn by himself is the strongest terms that he's going to deal with them. And he says, I abhor the pride of Jacob here in verse 8. Pride is such a terrible sin. And the Lord abhors pride, any pride that we have. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. You read the book of Proverbs. It speaks a lot about pride versus the humble. Uh, And uh, it is the proud that is foolish. It is the proud that is going to go down destruction and and is going to be cast down all these warnings about pride of course it was what caused lucifer to fall and become satan because of his pride so we need to be careful of pride it can come into our hearts very very easily in our lives and and um, cause a lot of um, difficulties to us then it shall come to pass verse uh, nine uh, if ten men remain in one house they shall die And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies, picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to uh, the one inside the house, are there any more with you? And someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue. For we dare not mention the name of the Lord. Now this may kind of seem strange to you, but you know they had such a wrong view of God. And it's a view that many people have today. Hey, if disaster comes because of our sin, because of judgment, don't mention the name of the Lord. Don't mention it because uh, in case judgment come upon you, it's kind of like it's the Lord's fault. Don't mention the the name of the Lord uh, because he's such a a harsh God. 
a, a terrible God. We will see that again of the, the unprofitable servant in the parable of the talent. You are hard, you know, a man. And so I took my talent and I buried it in the ground. So they're saying, don't mention the name of the Lord. Don't dare do that because he's a mean God and he's going to bring judgment on you if you so do. But then as we finish the, uh, for tonight, for behold, the Lord gives command. He will break the great house into bits and little house into uh, pieces. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? Yet you have turned justice into gall and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice over load the bar, who say we have not taken uh, carnium for ourselves by our own strength. And verse 14, but behold, I will raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel, says the Lord of hosts, and they will afflict you from the entrance of Hamath to the valley of Arabah. So God raises up, um, you know, uh, the enemy against Israel. They thought they were immune to destruction, and they thought they'd be okay uh, in their own strength. Um, uh, we can do it all on our own, and that's what pride does. I don't need any help. I don't need the Lord. I don't need to humble myself. I don't need to turn to the Lord. So, Father, we ask that as these words are familiar words to us and warnings, that we just ask that you would just help us. Lord, help us to be humbled before you, to understand this, that any chastening that you bring to us any correction is because you love us and you want what is very best for us. So, Lord, just um, I just pray that you would, Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you and uh, keep our hearts on you and desire to walk in a way that is pleasing to you. Not just relig- religious activities, uh, going to church, which is good, or whatever the case may be, but, Lord, truly having a heart for you and desiring to please you with our lives. And I pray that we would always understand this, that the message of Scripture is what sin does. It just leads us to captivity. It leads us to be prideful, self-reliance, focusing on the world. Lord, we want to be focused on you. So I pray that, Lord, these lessons that are given to us, they're written for our admonition. And, Lord, that we would understand this, that your ways are right and good, and we shall know the truth, and the truth shall set us free but to walk alongside of you in the good ways of the Lord is what our desire should be and to prioritize the things of the kingdom. Lord, we're thankful for the things that we have, what you bless us with. But Lord, they belong to you. And we want to use those things in a way that glorify you. Lord, that is pleasing to you. Not being selfish and self-indulgence and all those other things. But Lord, that we would, Lord, be sensitive to your leading in every area of our lives, everything that we have, it really belongs to you. And Lord, to be pleasing in how we use those things. And Lord, I just pray for guidance and wisdom in, in all those things. So Lord, uh, thank you for this time in your word. I pray you bless everyone here as we continue our week. Look forward to meeting again on Sunday. And uh, we just look forward to coming together as uh, the body of Christ, uh, as a church family. And so, Lord, uh, in the meantime, just guide us and direct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everybody, have a great rest of the week. Hopefully we can see you on Sunday as we will move into Matthew chapter 25 and continue with the Olivet Discourse. God bless you.